Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Diners have been steadily returning to many of their favorite restaurants, but the experience isn't always what it used to be. It's going the wrong way. Revenue is up, more diners are out, but the workers are not there to serve them. On today's show, we hear how restaurants are preparing for this fall and winter. And we continue our series exploring the legacy of sundown towns in the Mountain West. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. In the early 1900s, white people in Moscow, Idaho, expelled a small community of Chinese residents. And for a time, that likely made Moscow a sundown town, a place where ethnic and racial groups weren't welcome. Today, that event seems distant from this blue dot in a red state. But as KUNC's Robin Vincent reports, some people of color still feel uneasy living there. Dr. Sidney Freeman, a professor of educational leadership, is cooling down at the Starbucks on University of Idaho's campus. We're sitting on what I would call sacred ground or holy ground. This is where the Black Student Union once lived back in the 1970s. It never had a prime location and lost its physical space in less than five years. It was always either in a basement or it was in some other building that was not deemed as one of the high quality buildings. Back in 1973, a black student quoted in the school newspaper said lack of diversity was the real problem. There weren't many black students there at the time. In 2019, they comprised roughly 1% of the student body. Freeman recently secured a new home for the Black Student Union, but his work hasn't been easy. He remembers a conversation with school leaders about black students. They directly went to student athletes. So their perspective on the role of black students on campus was those of generating revenue for the institution. This year, at 36, Freeman became a full professor. He's only one of a few black instructors in the university's 132-year history to receive this title. Freeman says to survive as a black man in academia, he faces a high bar. You have to be rare and exceptional, but you're not acknowledged as such. He remembers the school recognizing him with a welcome sign when he took the job. After a while, it came down. They quickly said, oh, we want to get that changed. We want to get something more universal. Freeman's experience reflects the challenges people of color face in predominantly white institutions and places, even if the legacy of a sundown town is a historic blip there. The late sociologist James Lowen uncovered thousands of sundown towns across America. He said racism and a lack of diversity sometimes persist in those places and permeate their institutions. Once you have driven out your Chinese population, Once you're used to keeping out a group, it becomes easier to keep out the next group. 
In Moscow, what little we know about this history comes from an eyewitness account of so-called cowboys expelling the town's Chinese residents. Today, Black Lives Matter signs line the windows of Moscow's restaurants. The town of 25,000 saw multiple racial justice protests last year. In other words, Moscow's exclusionary history seems a distant memory. But even in this progressive bubble, Vanessa Anthony Stevens is weary. We were told by many white professors, this is such a nice town. And when we talked to our native colleagues, it was a very different story. Stevens and her husband, Philip, are professors. She's white. He's a member of the San Carlos Apache tribe. In 2019, they found racist postcards on their doorstep. Today, she doesn't want her family members of color to go out alone. Others share her worry. When I said, hey, I'm going to grad school in Idaho, everybody's like, are you sure? <laughs> like, what part of Idaho? I'm like, Moscow, are you sure? That's graduate student Katie Turner, a Louisiana native. A social media post saying she doesn't feel safe as a black woman in Moscow went viral last year. Unfortunately, I didn't feel comfortable going anywhere alone. Still, Turner says living here has helped advance her theater studies. The school is among the nation's land-grant universities, and its revenues come from unceded Native American land. That's widened her understanding of injustice. Her research asks, When colonizers come in and they make you change everything about yourself, how do you bounce back from that, or do you? Idaho's ban on public schools teaching critical race theory, which examines racism as a systemic problem, has further strained Turner's sense of belonging here. People like Doug Wilson also complicate how marginalized groups feel about Moscow. If you read through slave narratives, you're going to get accounts that are blood-chillingly horrific. You will also get accounts of former slaves who loved their masters. The conservative pastor is thriving in Moscow with churches, a classical Christian school, a liberal arts college, and a publishing house. Wilson disavows racism, but in a decades-old book on slavery, he defends Christian slaveholders. Debbie Line, a Chinese-American, left town years ago to escape this kind of thinking. She and her siblings were perennial outsiders here. We never really were invited over to people's friends' houses. We never dated anyone. Lyne's great-grandparents were likely the first Chinese-Americans to settle in Moscow after white people drove out Chinese residents. Her brother, Michael Chin, remembers a defining moment in high school. The class was reading Native American poetry. My classmates started saying, well, we still think that Native Americans live off the government, are drunk, are gamblers. If his classmates believed this, Chin thought, then how do you feel about me? Today, he wonders if his hometown will ever be a place where people of color feel at ease. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Robin Vincent. In our next story, we'll travel to a county in Nevada that once excluded Native Americans and explore how that's affected the Washoe tribe's culture today. The Indians uh, weren't allowed in town after 6 o'clock. When the whistle blew, you had to be on your way home. If you were caught on the street or anywhere, you got put in jail. Our series, After the Sun Goes Down, was produced in conjunction with the Mountain West News Bureau. You can find and share all the stories and see photos and a video exploring the broader impacts of sundown towns at KUNC.org sundown. Elk bugling is one of the classic sounds of autumn in the Colorado mountains. 
It's part of an elaborate annual ritual called the elk rut, the sound of elk bulls cruising for a date. Many nature enthusiasts head into the mountains during the elk rut to catch a glimpse of the spectacle. September is high elk rut season, which coincides with the autumn equinox. Last year, we spoke with Colorado Parks and Wildlife Big Game Manager Andy Holland to tell us more about the elk rut that happens this time of year. So let's start with the basics. For listeners who don't know, what is elk rut? So it's one of nature's most amazing spectacles, and it's all about mate selection, breeding, and survival of the species, or or as you put it, cruising for a date. Um, (laughs) Males advertising and forming harems is really rare in deer species, and that's exactly what's going on here. Bulls are bugling to attract females, and that harem not only gives the male more breeding opportunity, but females are choosing which bull they're associating with. And by doing so, they're selecting a proven male that's older, usually, has survived, has proven his ability to survive many years, and secure resources in terms of forage, which translates into larger antlers and larger body size. So females are selecting based on physical traits. Ultimately, they're choosing the best genetics for their calves. And there's one other advantage to the female, and that is protection from pesky younger suitors that the the mature bull will essentially defend that harem against all other bulls that are attracted to it. I'm curious about what kind of behaviors are part of elk rut other than the bugling. It all starts with antler velvet shedding in mid-August and then rubbing trees to strengthen their neck and darken their antlers. And then there's wallowing behavior where they roll in the mud, which makes them smell more intimidating and look bigger because they're black. And then there's, uh, as you mentioned, bugling, um, other vocalizations and sparring and ultimately fighting. Oh, don't just bugle, right? You just mentioned some other vocalizations. What's the range of sounds? And and I imagine that they they all mean a little bit of a different thing. Bulls bugle, which is the higher pitched sound that carries well in open, you know, terrain. It can be heard from miles. They also grunt, which is a lower frequency sound that can be heard Mm -hmm. through trees. They also glunk. It's like a hollow clunk, 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 which is sort of a sound they make when they're tending or herding cows. They, they mew, bulls mew just like cows and calves, here, 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 like that. And they bark, um, sort of a excited or an alarm. How much of maintaining a healthy elk population is dependent on a successful elk rut season? 100% of it. it. It's all about survival of the species. The timing of the rut is controlled by day length, which is why essentially it's associated with the autumn equinox. And so right now the days are getting shorter which affects melatonin levels, and that triggers hormone changes in both bulls and cows. Bull testosterone level can increase a thousand times. The breeding all happens at the same time, which means the calves are all born at the same time. The importance of that is calves are born when the forage quality is the highest for lactating females to nurse their young. And so they need to be born late enough that forage quality is high for nursing but not too, so late that the calves are not large enough to survive next winter. And then that also swamps predators. So if all the calves are born at once, the predators have obviously a lot of calves to eat, but they can't eat them all because they all hit, hit the ground at the same time. So that's mm-hmm. the best case scenario. So it, it's all about survival of the species. 
For listeners who are interested in witnessing the elk rut, what tips can you share about how and when to go about it for the best viewing experience? Well, the how is right now, so mid to late September and into the first week of October. Essentially, if the aspens are turning, that's your cue. I just encourage everybody to enjoy it from a distance. So take binoculars and you'll get a better show if you're not disturbing the animals. There's also a human safety aspect to this as well. You have to remember a bull elk is 800 pound animal that just had testosterone levels spike by a thousand times and they can run 45 miles an hour. Socially distanced from people and elk. Exactly. Yeah, I like that. I think the reason that elk are so fascinating especially in this regard with the rut is just they are very different in in their breeding structure and this this harem forming and bugling this is really quite the a fairly rare spectacle in nature that happens here with, with these large animals being so conspicuous andy holland is big game manager for colorado parks and wildlife thank you so much for joining us and thanks for these incredible uh, tips my pleasure one of my favorite subjects You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. In the spring of this year, consumer spending on the food and service industry started to return to pre-pandemic levels in cities across Colorado. But despite an increase in busy tables and crowded bars, restaurants were still grappling with a worker shortage, an estimated 25,000 fewer employees throughout the industry. Many restaurants came up with new ways to incentivize workers, such as increasing wages, benefits, even offering hiring bonuses. But now, with the Delta variant still looming in the background, restaurants might be plagued with an even greater challenge, trying to ramp up consumer spending while also mitigating the risks of spreading COVID for a second autumn in a row. Here to talk more about the future of fall dining is chef and owner of the regional restaurant in Fort Collins, Kevin Grossi. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we are also joined by Communications Director for the Colorado Restaurant Association, Denise Mickelson. Denise, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, back in March of 2020, so more than a year ago, when COVID first hit, a lot of restaurants downsized staff. Some of them even closed their doors. Kevin, I want to start with you. How did the regional respond in the early days of the pandemic? Um, we were definitely in shock right away, but we did the same as most places did. And we just shrunk our staff to what we were able to handle at the point and, you know, just reverted the menu to full on to go. So that right there pretty much dictated what our staffing was going to look like right there. We didn't have a lot to do, to be honest, spent a lot of time cleaning the place and, you know, figuring out how to organize to go boxes and, yeah, it was definitely very odd at the moment. Yeah, and I, you know, especially when people are used to maybe plating things a certain way, how do you replicate that experience in a to-go order? Yeah, that was that was definitely kind of the first initial like, this is so different because we 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 ended up changing our menu to a lot more comfort style. So we went away from plating altogether, and it, and you know, what I saw, especially when we would get to go food is the restaurants that did a good job of making sure that things were put separately and to go ramekins. So really you would have to do that on your own at home. Mm, right. And it sounds like you had your finger on the pulse of what people really needed and wanted, which was comfort food. Yeah. Lots of fried chicken. <laughs> and Denise does what, you know, Kevin kind of went through, does that sort of reflect the overall trend in the restaurant industry? hundred percent. Yeah, definitely. We've 
seen a major shift to all those comforting meals, fried chicken and pizza has done really well. And, and restaurants that had a menu that lent itself to to-go or delivery, you know, were in a stronger position out of the gate. And the ones that did not have those types of menus shifted quickly to things that they could serve people successfully at home where the texture and, you know, flavor and all that wouldn't get muddied. You know, tacos went from um, an assembled taco you would get at the restaurant to a taco kit that you would put together yourself at home so the tortillas don't get soggy, you know, and root. Um, so restaurants across the state and country shifted and pivoted, you know, the way that they were serving their customers to make the shutdowns, you know, doable. Now, over this past summer, when it looked like the pandemic might finally be winding down, the vaccines became available, I think the expectation was that a lot of people would go back to restaurants or uh, go back to their um, restaurant jobs and service industry jobs. But that didn't really happen. Denise, what did that look like? And could you tell us why um, workers did not return the way that it was thought that they would? You know, I wish someone would tell me why workers <laughs> did not return. No, there are, there are so many reasons why. It's a very complex issue. Um, you know, yes, vaccines rolled out in the spring, and we had all hoped that this would all start to resolve itself, but we have had scary, contagious variants. We have had, you know, the vaccines have not rolled out as quickly or as seamlessly as we had hoped, and then some people didn't want to get the vaccines, um, you know, for varying reasons. We've had systemic issues with affordable housing and childcare that have not resolved through the course of the pandemic. And so if you are a restaurant worker where you cannot work from home and you have to actually physically be there interacting with the public, you know, that is a very different consideration right now. And so I think a lot of people that were home during the shutdown either got training and we've heard about a lot of people who have left the industry um, and, you know, they just got jobs in other places or they're still waiting to come back. Um, and many restaurant workers have come back and they're happy to be back in their jobs doing what they love, but, um, and wages have certainly gone up, you know, the whole model of um, how restaurant workers are being compensated has changed and improved for sure, but um, we're still down, as you said, 25,000 workers in Colorado alone, um, and, you know, 40, we lost 41,500 workers in August nationwide in the hospitality sector, so it's going the wrong way. Revenue is up, more diners are out, but um, the workers are not there to serve them. Yeah, and there is that imbalance with people who are more than ready to get back to, you know, going out to eat, going out to bars, yet there is this worker shortage. Kevin, I'm wondering, what does this look like for you? How are you grappling with the worker shortage? Uh, Denise just mentioned, you know, some restaurants are increasing pay and benefits. What what does this look like at the regional? Um, we did the increase of pay because we uh, had a moment where we were losing cooks that were already that actually got through the pandemic you know due to you know other restaurants around us that were um kind of ahead of the curve you know us being in fort collins it's a little it's a little challenging for us to be the first one to attempt to take uh add on a charge um so we did do that you know due to competition you know is where it was and once once we added we added a two percent um kitchen wage charge so it was on the lower end but it actually does able, it's able to raise the hourly for the line cooks and the kitchen dishwashers up about $4 an hour, you know, in addition. So once we did that, we saw a little bit, a lot more stability and some applicants coming in the door. And did you find people jumping in to help in unusual ways? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was, that's kind of funny. Uh, 
so yeah, it was the last day we shut down. Um, I don't know, March 17th. I don't remember what it was a Monday, I think was our, we were supposed to have an event. We canceled the event. And, um, I actually cut the entire staff, um, that night. And I actually did, I was like, we're not going to be busy. And I bartended, I served, I dishwashed, I cooked the food. Um, big mistake doing that by the way. And I, I sold a thousand dollars, which is like, like doing that cooking and dishwashing and bartending was like, okay, everybody, I have to make an announcement, be patient. It's just me. But I had um, a buddy who was at the bar with his, with his wife. He's like, I'm going to bartend for you. So he jumped back there and then a random, um, a random kid with his parents in the dining room works at a nice restaurant in Virginia. He's like, do you mind if I will wash your dishes? And I was like, absolutely. And he's like, just seeing my look of, all of the emotions coming over top of me from the, you know, knowing that the restaurant's shutting down to like literally trying to like not burn something in a pan while I'm at the bar. Um, so yeah, it was pretty, pretty wild last night before it all came down. We're speaking with Kevin Grossi, chef and owner of The Regional, a restaurant in Fort Collins, and Denise Mickelson with the Colorado Restaurant Association. Now in June, Denver saw a return to pre-pandemic spending at bars and restaurants, but now with the spread of the Delta variant, things are a little more uncertain. Denise, do you have a sense of the projections for restaurant spending this fall? Well, I can tell you that um, at the end of August, the National Restaurant Association did a survey um, across the country, and it looked like about almost 20% of adults were opting not to go out anymore in light of the Delta variant. So there is definitely some, um, I think, consumer hesitation around going out and and being out in public because of of the contagiousness of that variant. But it does seem now, here we are at the end of September, things are getting a little bit better. The numbers seem better and the case counts seem lower. Um, So we're hoping that, you know, it will be an active restaurant fall and winter. I know that everyone who invested in outdoor dining um, structures, tents, yurts, and other type igloo situations um, did not get rid of those over the summer, um, maybe even kept them up and certainly are going to be deploying them again this winter. So we are looking at another, in my opinion, fun um, outdoor dining Colorado winter, you know, put on your puffer and and get out there and get into an igloo and, you know, yeah, get ready to eat outside again. (laughs) And Kevin, does that kind of resonate with you um, in Fort Collins at the regional? Are your customers ready to, to sit outside this fall and winter? Yeah, I mean, we we have seen an increase, which has been great. And um, for dine-in, our to-go's are actually still going up, which is pretty cool to see. So we still have those numbers going. We were just, you know, staring at our outdoor makeshift patio ourselves. And we're like, man, we have a lot of work to do to this thing. So we were we were definitely waiting to see, like, what's the call, you know, on that, if we're going to keep going. And then the conversation of uh, propane came back up as well for all the heaters and fire pits. So I think I think we we enjoyed the summer where it was and everyone's sitting outside. And now we have to kind of recalibrate because going back and thinking about New Year's Eve last year is still a crazy thought of how we pulled that off and what, you know, most of our diners were dining literally in snow, you know, outside and having multi-course menus and we thank them for it. And it's just, it's still, I'll never, I'll never forget that. Like that's, it was just so wild. Well, for people who are, you know, really dreaming of going back to eat in restaurants this fall and thinking ahead to winter, what would you like them to keep in mind? And Kevin, I want to ask you too, what might be going on behind the scenes or behind the kitchen door uh, that people should keep in mind or might not know about? 
I would say just, you know, they're the, the staff's trucking along, you know, they're doing, they're doing what they can to keep it going and keep it consistent and, um, you know, keep the guests happy. And, you know, we've, we've gone through some, a little bit back and forth with some, you know, guests because everyone's coming back out and it's, it is tough times for everybody. It's hard, but, um, you know, I just want all our guests to know that we have a really solid, loyal staff that wants to provide great food and keep the sourcing going. So, they should rest easy, you know, when they're coming out. A lot of places are definitely um, putting their best foot forward because we had to, um, no matter what, through the pandemic. And right now, it's like that is actually kind of installed um, continually. So they're they're they're. I'm I'm proud of my staff, and I'm proud of where we've we've, we've gotten through. And I think this next year is going to be um, probably one of our better years, which is kind of crazy to say. So. And Denise, let me put the question to you too. For Coloradans who are just really anxious to get back and, you know, cozy into a restaurant over the fall and winter, what should we keep in mind? You know, restaurants are particularly primed to keep their guests safe, you know, from food safety before there was ever a pandemic. Restaurants have always been, you know, wonderful at that and making sure that uh, their customers are taken care of in every way. And that is not any different now. They know how to deal with the pandemic. You know, the uh, staff are trained um, and restaurants are very safe spaces um, as long as you follow whatever rules they ask of you. I would say also, please be kind and empathetic and patient. Um, it's very exciting to get back out. Maybe just lean into the meal. And, and if, the, you know, if perhaps service might be a little slower for a restaurant that is understaffed, you know, just lean in. It's fine. Just relax and, and be kind to those workers. We're working really, really hard. And then finally, um, you know, some menu prices have gone up, right? And maybe there's a service charge tacked on to make sure that the kitchen staff is getting adequately compensated. And um, I think we all need to be prepared for that because the cost of food and labor and supplies have gone up strikingly in the last 18 months. And we all need to remember that, um, you know, we can't expect the restaurateurs to, to eat all those costs. We have to help. That was chef and owner of the regional, Kevin Grossi, and communication director for the Colorado Restaurant Association, Denise Mickelson. Thanks so much to both of you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That's our show for today. Tomorrow, Colorado's air quality has not improved much over the past 10 years, and wildfire smoke full of fine particulate matter is one of the primary culprits. We explore how wildfire activity worsened by climate change is impacting our air and our health. That's tomorrow on Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.